0: The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: Tonight we are looking at Edward's uh, treatise on religious affections, the second part. I hope you all got a handout. Uh, this this is a phenomenally significant work that Edwards wrote. Uh, let me set the uh, the historical context for you again. Edwards wrote this uh, at the end or really after, one could say, after the Great Awakening was really over. The The peak of the Great Awakening was finished. And he's writing now to people who have experienced many things in the religious realm. They've been through a lot by this point. They've seen more than most of us would ever see. I mean we haven't been through a revival like the Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening had an incredible impact uh, at, a, at a, in a wide over a wide area of geography. Many, many people um, were uh, affected very deeply and very greatly by the pre- by the moving of the Spirit. But uh, as things started to settle down, some people returned to their old ways. Um, they didn't continue walking with the Lord. And so there needed to be some kind of an explanation for what's going on. Now, there are two different ways to explain what happens when somebody who seems to be a Christian, who has made a uh, profession of faith in Christ, who has uh, lived out, it seems, the Christian lifestyle for a while, but then goes back to um, a life that repudiates Christ. There are two different ways to explain that. What would they be? What would one way be to explain that phenomenon? Somebody who's a very clear professor of faith in christ who sits next to you at the revival meetings who's just as excited as you are who uh goes to all the services the way you do who starts attending church who does all these things but then after a number of years they're not in it at all how what are the two ways you could explain that what's one of the two ways they never were a christian i wouldn't put backslidden in there but perhaps i mean they're christian but i guess that would be a third way that they are behaving contrary to their confession at that point but um one of them is that they were converted they re- never really were converted. And what would be another way, um, the opposite way of understanding that? That they've lost their salvation. That they were genuinely converted. Um, that they were redeemed. That they were truly Christian. And they have lost their salvation. And that's what John Wesley thought. Uh, as he looked at the situation, he said, it's very clear. Like a dog returning to its vomit, these have returned back to their old way of life. And Edwards tries to explain this through these kind of metaphysical nuances that nobody can follow. Christianity is a simple thing. You have to hear and repent and believe. That's all. Christianity and conversion are essentially simple. And therefore, it's plain and obvious to anybody that these folks have have lost their salvation. And even now, if they will repent, if God is gracious and gives them time, they can get it back again. That is the Arminian way of looking at this. And this is what Wesley wrote about Treatise on Religious Affections. He read it and didn't think much of it. This is what he said. The design of Mr. Edwards in this treatise, from which the following extract is made, seems to have been chiefly, if not altogether, to serve his oneness. Namely, that uh, these people were not genuinely converted. He's trying to prove that. In three preceding tracts, he had given an account of the glorious work of God in New England. But in a few years, a considerable part of these turned back as a dog to the vomit. What was the plain inference to be drawn from this? Why? That a true believer may make shipwreck of his faith that's what Wesley said it's obvious isn't it that you can lose your salvation um, how then could he evade the force of this truly by eating his own words and proving as well as the nature of the thing would bear that they were not believers at all in order to do this he heaps together so many curious subtle metaphysical distinctions as are sufficient to puzzle the brains and confound the intellect of all the plain men and women of the universe, and to make them doubt of, if not wholly deny, all the work which God had wrought in their souls. So Wesley, on treatise of religious affection. What he does say also is, out of this dangerous heap, uh, wherein there is much wholesome mood, uh, food mixed with much deadly poison, I have selected many remarks and admonitions which may have be, uh, great use. be of great use, to the children of God. So he says there's some good stuff in here, but there's some deadly poison as well. Now, what was that deadly poison? What, how did he look at it? Well, basically that it gets you to doubt what God's done in your life, that conversion is essentially simple, and uh, that Christian faith is assembly, essentially simple, and that it is quite possible for someone who uh, is genuinely converted that they would lose their salvation. Now, obviously, uh, we have some problems here, don't we? I mean, there's just different ways... Of looking at uh, experience but when you look at experience and then say plainly such and such I'm not so sure that these things are as plain as Wesley thought they were is the work of the Holy Spirit a plain and simple obvious thing I don't think so I think that the work of the Holy Spirit is infinitely deep and mysterious and difficult to trace out the wind blows where it wishes it's very difficult to know what the Spirit is doing Now, we know some things because the scripture tells us. Secondly, are you essentially simple? Are you as a human being an essentially simple thing? Is your will, your intellect, your emotional state, your affections, are these simple things? No, they're not. And anyone who's married can testify that people are not simple. Okay? There are complexities involved. And I'm not going to go into gender distinctions right now. There are just complexities involved. People are complex. Hearts are complex. And Edwards is wrestling with a very complex thing, namely, serious work of the Holy Spirit coupled with the mysteries of our own selves, our own minds. Augustine said, I don't understand myself. Paul said that in Romans 7. I don't know why I do what I do. I'm a complex being. And so Edwards is wrestling with this. And yes, it does seem subtle. And yes, it does seem puzzling, and yes, there do seem to be metaphysical distinctions that are a little hard to follow. Uh, it's not surprising that when you read this, you can get lost. Um, that shouldn't uh, surprise us. And of the three treatises, the uh, three sections of the treatise, this one is the most depressing and the most discouraging. So I've had to mix in. Wesley talked about mixing in. Uh, this, in in this section, he's going to go through all of those things which are no proof that you are converted. And when you get done with this list of 12 things, you wonder if you're a Christian. Because you look at all these things and say, I was kind of hoping in these things. I was looking at these and saying, this is how I know that I'm saved. And it really makes you, you know, wonder, okay, what's left? Well, that's the third section, and we're not going to get to that tonight. So I don't want to leave you a whole week wondering you know, about yourselves and, and your own Christian experience. So we're going to talk about that. The nub of the matter on the section, the third section. Basically what Edwards is going to say is, that the love and pursuit of personal holiness by broken-hearted sinners, this is the mark of regeneration. I'll say it again, the love and pursuit of personal holiness by broken-hearted, humbled sinners, you know, this is the mark of, of uh, regeneration. This is what the Holy Spirit does. All the other things that he's going to list here are good things, but they're not the essence of it. And they can be counterfeited. But this is something that Satan will not counterfeit. He can't counterfeit it because he's not holy. He hates righteousness and he's never going to work this in anybody. And so when you see in yourself a broken hearted by that, what do you think he means by broken hearted? He says all true, gracious or godly affections are broken hearted affections. We'll talk about that next week. What does he mean by that? Okay, Psalm 51. What does that say, Jack? That's right. A broken and contrite spirit, oh God, you will not despise. And so basically, you are permanently brokenhearted as a, as a Christian, aren't you? You're not, you're not really like, well, now I'm healed. I'm so full of myself. I'm healthy and strong. again. It's not that. You de- definitely feel the rest of your life that you are a sinner in need of God's grace. At every moment and so you feel that and yet there's a great joy in that because you know you have full forgiveness you know that Christ has paid the penalty for your sins and yet you don't trust in yourself there's a broken heart blessed are those who mourn the spiritual beggars these are the ones who are in the kingdom of heaven but that's not enough to just be broken-hearted there's also a longing and pursuit and love for personal holiness what do we mean by that it's so true and you know the more I look at this and, and, and then say it just feels so right the more of it I I come back to the Beatitudes and realize how Christ nailed it right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Because these are the things. Blessed are those uh, who are spiritual beggars, who know themselves to be destitute and have no resources inside themselves for this. Blessed are those who mourn. That's being brokenhearted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. This is what Christ said is the essence of kingdom life. And Edwards is just putting it in different words. But when he lists out these 12 things that we're going to look at tonight, which are no sure and certain sign of regeneration, you'll be amazed. And you'll start to realize how cheap it is to enter an evangelical church these days, how how easy it is to be considered to be an eminent saint even, um, and how careful Edwards was about those things. Uh, we're going to see it now. The first few pages here. Uh, our review, and I don't think we really have time for it. We just talked last time about the nature of affections and their importance in religion. So I just condensed the lecture from last time on the first page and a half. But you can read that. I'm going to just launch in now into part two, showing what are no certain signs that religious affections are gracious. Let me say this one thing about last time, which is two weeks ago. Basically, his point is that affections are the essence of true religion, true Christianity, are uh, the true the essence of true faith in Christ, true religion in Christ is essentially affection. Now, we define what that meant in that the human uh, mind or, or heart has the ability not only to know and understand or perceive something, to know its attributes and its nature, you know, the intellectual side, the mental side, but also to either be attracted to the way from it, to yearn it and to want it, to like it or love it or to dislike it or hate it, that we do this kind of thing. And so uh, we are moved in our affections toward holy things, toward God. And he's saying that this uh, affection is very much the essence of true uh, uh, religion. Now realize that he's fighting on two different battles. There are some, Chauncey and the old lights, that are saying that these excesses are bad. They actually are, are proof that these people are not converted. They they don't have that sober-minded, serious, duty, dutiful dedication to the laws and the rules and all that that we see in a a sober-minded intellectual understanding of doctrine. That's the old lights. And he's arguing against them, saying no, religion is very much in the affections. But on the other hand, he's arguing against those that just go so far the other direction that say the more affections, the more emotions, the more display, the better. And so he's got to be so careful and find the right place. All right, that's a very quick summary of last time's um, you know, discussion. Let's dig in now into this. And now what he's going to do is he's going to begin to discern things. You know, one of the aspects of the Christian life that we have is the ability to discern, to see the difference between things, to be able to taste the food and see what's good and to see what's not good. And that's what he's doing in such a very careful way here. And this is typical of Edwards because he does the same thing in the marks of a revival of God. How can you tell when God is is doing a revival and when he's not? What are the, the marks of a, of a work of the Holy Spirit generally in people? So he's doing the same thing now. And so he's going to begin negatively. It's going to be a negatively. So we're going to have an essentially negative study tonight in which we're looking through 12 things which he says are no sign or mark either way, whether you are converted. You see, there's it's no mark either way, these things, showing what are no certain signs that religious affections are gracious, that is saving grace from God, or that they are not. And now he's not going to do this equally with all 12 because some of them, he doesn't even need to defend one of the sides. Nobody would claim that if you have lots of love, it proves you're not a Christian. Nobody was saying that, and so he didn't waste any time arguing. Chauncey and the old lights, and, and nobody said that, so why won't it? There's no, no Christian on earth that says, I'll tell you what, if I see a lot of love from you, I know you're not a Christian. Okay? He didn't need to waste any time on that. So he only argued on the one side. Just because there seems to be a display of love doesn't mean you are a Christian. That's what he's going to be doing. So he's, but in many of these cases, he's got to go on both sides. He's got to show that just because you have a lot of affections doesn't mean you're not a Christian, arguing against those old lights. All right? Just because you're not doesn't mean you're, but on the other hand, just because you are, you do have them doesn't mean you are a Christian. So he's always got to be looking at both sides of the, of the coin, and he does so very, very well. Now let's look at the list of 12 things and see what he says are no certain signs that you are born again or that you're not, either way. Number one, strong and high affections is no proof either way concerning someone's conversion. Secondly, that someone's affections have a strong effect on their body is no proof either way concerning their conversion. That thirdly, affections cause someone to become very fluent, fervent and abundant in talking about Christ and spiritual things is no proof either way concerning their conversion. Fourth, that someone did not manufacture or stimulate those affections on their own is no proof either way concerning their or their conversion sorry number five that those affections come with many texts of scripture is no proof either way concerning their conversion. number six that there is an appearance of love in them is no proof. number seven, having many different kinds of religious affections is no proof. number eight that comforts and joys in spiritual things follow, A great torment of soul in a certain order is no proof. I'll talk about that in a moment. But Number nine, that these religious affections cause someone to spend much time in religion and to be zealously engaged in the external duties of worship is no proof. Number ten, that these affections lead people to praise and glorify God with their mouths is no proof. Number 11, that these affections make the people that have them exceedingly confident that what they experience is divine and that they are in a good estate is no proof. Number 12, that the outward manifestations of these affections and the accounts people give of them are very affecting and pleasing to the godly is no proof. Well, even that might be a little wordy for you. So what I did was I boiled it down even simpler. Albert Einstein said everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. Now I don't know if I've gone too simple here, but I've tried to simplify that list of 12 and uh, get it down to its lowest level. Simplified list. First of all, strong high religious affections, no proof. Have lots of strong feelings, religious feelings, that's no proof. Secondly, to have some, those affections have some effect on your body. You might say what are you talking? About? Well, I mean if you've been through a, re- a revival, you probably I mean, there's dancing in the aisles. I mean, there are people rolling on the ground. Um, there are there are people that show with their bodies that things have happened. There are some people that, that weep, that cry out, that 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 uh, like when he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, people thought that the ground was was going to open up under their feet and that they were going to be swallowed up into hell. And you could, if you had been watching them, you would have seen bodily effects of their uh, their affections, what they were what they were going through. Thirdly, fluent, fervent, and abundant talk about Christ is no proof. Being able to talk about the things of God and be fervent in that talk and say many things uh, and even accurate things—it's no proof. Number four, that you believe these affections came from outside you is no proof. To say, "Hey, this isn't like me. These kinds of things don't happen to me. I didn't—I don't—I didn't manufacture this. Came on me from the outside. It's no proof." Number five, uh, that you have lots of texts of scripture to support what's happened to you is no proof. Number six, having an appearance of love is no proof. Now Edwards will say having a genuine love for God and love for neighbor is proof, but love can be counterfeited. And he's going to talk about that. that and he's talking here about an appearance of love and having that is no proof. Number seven, having many different kinds of religious affections, a kind of a Golden Corral experience in which it's not just one thing, but many things on your plate. Some of you are cringing. Maybe you, don't, you just don't like Golden Corral, but I mean, there are buffets, you know, in which you can load up on your plate. Just to have a variety of these things is no proof. It's very interesting that he points that one out, and I'll, I'll tell you more later why I find that interesting. Um, he's a very careful man. Number eight, that torment of soul gave way in the end to joy is no proof. Now, this is kind of big and we'll talk more about it, but the Puritans especially had a kind of a pattern of conversion that you went through certain agonies of the soul and it, and it was caused by the law and terrors of the law. And it, and it resulted in a, in a kind of a crying out against yourself for a period of time. And then after that would come a certain relief and release that you had been forgiven and that God was merciful to you. And you were then convinced that you were converted. There was a pattern and program. And it almost became ritualistic, as so often happens. You can go from tradition to traditionalism. And this is the way. And when you start to realize that everybody coming forward to give testimony gave the same testimony, uh, that's why Richard Baxter had to say, God breaketh not all men alike. Not everybody gets broken by the Spirit the same way. Have your own testimony. Tell us what God really did in your life. It doesn't all have to be the same thing. But anyway... Even if you do get the, the grade A blue ribbon approved conversion testimony story, doesn't mean that it's genuinely, uh, you're genuinely converted. Okay, number nine. Lots of religious service and external worship is no proof. And number ten. Praising and glorifying God with your mouth is no proof. Number eleven. This is striking. A, having a strong confidence and assurance based on these affections is no proof. Now, think about evangelism explosion. Don't we basically ask them to give an assessment of their assurance? If you were to die tonight, you know, tell me how sure you would be that you were uh, going to heaven. We're always asking people about their assurance. And if they don't have 100% assurance, we think they need the gospel. And we're going to share the gospel with them because 99% assured is 100% lost, one preacher said. 99% assured is 100% lost. Is that true? Where do you find that in the Bible? You know, what do you think Peter's level of assurance was when the cock crowed that night? You know, 100% lost. Jesus said, I pray for you that your faith will not fail. He wasn't lost at all. But he had a pretty tough night that night and his assurance was about as low as I think you're going to find it. Um, But flip side, is it true that 100% assured is 100% saved? Because you are absolutely convinced that you're saved, are you? I don't know. How convinced were the Pharisees that they were saved? Well, they had 110 percent and working on 111? They were going up. Okay, number 12, having a compelling testimony that godly people, that other godly people love and put their stamp of approval on. All of these people say, now this person's a Christian, it is no proof. All right. Now you say, wow. You know what's left? You know you look at that and you say, I've got nothing left to stand on. But you've got to realize now, you look at these 12 things, realize that these things actually are part of a healthy Christian life. And they are good things that God does. And so you can get to be alienated from the list and say, okay, I don't want any of those things. That's the wrong reaction. You should want all of these things. These are good things. To talk a lot about your faith is a good thing. And to be to be active in praising God with your mouth is a good thing. All of these are fruit on the tree, but they're not the essence of the tree. That's what he's saying. And the fruit can be taped by, by the devil onto the tree without there being a genuine living principle there. That's what he's getting at here. All right, well, let's take them apart and look at them one at a time as time allows. We're not going to really have the time to go through all of these equally. As a matter of fact, I didn't even do that on your sheet. Uh, I'm urging you to read this you know, on your own. My little synopsis here will not do, do it justice. Let's look at the first. Strong and high affections is no proof either way concerning someone's conversion. By the way, just when you begin this process and start to accept that this process is valid, you begin to realize how revolutionary that is in an evangelical church. Because it's so easy to just take everything at face value and just assume that because somebody comes regularly to church and that they talk a lot about Christianity and, I mean, the standards get impossibly low almost in, in evangelical churches. You know, I mean, looking for some evidence you know, and and well, they, you know, and, and even the slightest little thing, and then we'll say, well, they they were saved, they just didn't really lead a great Christian life. Well, I, I'll tell you this, um, for for myself, I, I get anxious about you know, as a pastor, I don't I don't I don't settle for that, and and it's it's a hard thing to break in to that and say, don't trust in these things. These things are no sure certain proof for you. Let's look instead at what's really going on in your heart to be sure that you know the Lord and I I say of all the things in pastoral ministry that is among the most painful to take somebody who you believe as a pastor is falsely assured and to do the work needed to bring them to that same conclusion so that they will genuinely trust in the Lord is a very difficult and painful journey you can imagine because they're going to fight you every step of the way and you're taking away what they clung to all this time and it's very very hard but it needs to be done alright number one strong and high affections no proof either way All right, it is no proof that you are not converted if you have strong religious affections. Now, that might seem odd to you, but that's what these old lights, Chauncey and all them were saying. If we see this big, enthusiastic, outward affection thing, you don't really know what Christianity is. Well, he's got to argue against that. And that's the very thing he did in the whole first section of his treatise anyway, isn't it? You know, who's going to say that we should not have a very strong love for Christ? You have too much love for Christ. I mean that's who would ever argue that that's an odd position to take <clears throat> or or that we we should not have a very great hatred of evil and be actually emotional about it and have a reaction to it to a temptation or something I actually think our reactions are too weak too flaccid and Edward says no drive them on you know to where god is have a strong and passionate response to evil like jesus did or number 3 that we should have very strong yearning for holiness these are affections the main text that he's working on speaks of very strong affections. First Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's pretty strong affection, isn't it? And so if this is what Peter's enjoining, so much for Chauncey and the Old Lights. Because that is very strong affection. That's passionate language, isn't it? Number five, there is much evidence in Scripture about very high affections as part of the healthy Christian life. Jesus commanded it, didn't he? Luke 6.23, if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, he told you, quote, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. And when was the last time you leapt for joy? I think it's been a while for me. I, I'm not a leaper, okay? Okay, but maybe I need to be more of a leaper, okay? Jesus commands leap for joy here. What would Chauncey think of that? What would the old lights think of that leaping thing? We've got to be careful of that leaping. But Jesus said, leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, because that's how they persecuted the prophets. Number six, the, pa- the Psalms are filled with passionate expressions. Psalm 119:97, oh, how I love your law. I say on it all day long. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting to do an original language study on the word oh. Uh, there's a number of words that are translated oh. And they're just, I mean, they have no business there except emotion. They're affectionate words. They're passionate words. Uh, sometimes the English translates, uh, oh, just in the direct address, the so-called vocative case, whenever we're speaking to Lord. I love you, O Lord. That's not the word I'm talking about. But there's another word that does, you know, like, oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable is judgment. That's just passionate language, isn't it? And it's just the, the Greek uh, omega, just a single letter. And the NASB 119.53 says, burning indignation has seized me. Because of the wicked who forsake your law. Burning indignation. That sounds like strong passion, doesn't it? Sounds like affections. Uh, Psalm 119, 136. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. I was very convicted by my study of Psalm 119 and how passionate the psalmist is and how my heart isn't like this. I don't cry when God's word is disobeyed. But the psalmist did. Paul and John the Baptist express Christians in Christ. John the Baptist said, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now perfect. I mean, he's just filled with joy at hearing Jesus' voice. Filled with joy. And so also Philippians 1.8, For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Very affectionate language there. Uh, 2 Timothy one four same thing with his relationship with Timothy. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Timothy apparently cried when he said goodbye to Paul. Back in those days, when you said goodbye to somebody, it could be for life. I mean, it was just hard to move around. And if he knew that, that Paul was going a, a long distance away, he might never see him again, and he cried. And he said, recalling your tears, I long to see you. And, you know, I, there's every indication with this being 2 Timothy that he never saw him again. That was his last letter. He expected to, to die soon. So um, and a lot of affection, a lot of emotion there. The church rejoiced greatly in Christ's resurrection and ascension. Uh, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. There's a lot of evidence about this. We don't have to work too hard to prove this. Number nine, saints and angels in heaven are characterized by interlays of affection. Edwards put it this way, the saints and angels in heaven that have religion in its highest perfection are exceedingly affected with what they behold and contemplate of God's perfections and works. They are all as a pure flame of fire in their love and in the greatness and strength of their joy and gratitude. Revelation 19, 1 through 7. This is a little slice of heavenly affection is what it is. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Stop there. I mean, that is passion going on up there in heaven. The roar of a multitude shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. What are they celebrating? They're celebrating like the seven bowls and the seven vials and the seven trumpets. I mean, they are just worshiping God for what he's doing. And he's pouring out wrath. But they know that he's clearing the way for the coming of Christ, that Jesus is coming back now. Revelation 19 is the second coming chapter. And uh, they are just on the edge of their seat. If they're even seated, they're probably standing and jumping up and down. Come, Lord Jesus, they're shouting. But uh, salvation and glory and power belong to our true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, stop there. I mean they just don't stop, do they? They're just so excited and they're so thrilled. And non-Christians tell us that heaven's going to be a boring place. My goodness, this is not boredom I'm reading here. They shouted again, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up up forever and ever. They're worshiping God for his wrath here. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne. They did what? They fell down. These are bodily expressions. Do they have bodies? I don't know. But they fell down. <laughs> they fell down, and they exp- they are just filled with with joy, and they worship God, who is seated on the throne, and they cried, "Amen! Hallelujah!" And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder. Well, he already said that in verse 1, so he's got to be adding even more. It was like that was loud, but this is louder now, okay? Shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. That's the uh, Hallelujah verse. You know that, don't you? The Hallelujah chorus. That's what Handel was reading when he said this, and, and he did his feeble best to put into earthly music uh, what is really going to go on on that day in heaven. And you say, feeble, yes, feeble, compared to what the saints and the, and the angels in heaven were doing. It is just an earthly echo. Verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Now, if that's not passion, I don't know what is. I mean, that is a, that's a hot place. Uh, there's a lot of passion there. And therefore, it is clearly concluded that great and high displays of affection are no proof that you are not converted. Isn't it obvious? But now, is it proof that you are converted? That's what he's going to argue now. Because you have big, high displays of affection, and emotion, does that prove that you're born again? Frequently in the text, he will say, On the other hand, and when you read that, if you have uh, a copy you could write in, you circle that because that's where he's turning to deal with the other folks. And just about every time in in each one of these points, he says, Now, on the other hand, it is no proof the other way that you are converted if you have these big shows of of affection and emotion. There are many examples of people in, in Scripture who have strong religious affections who are not certainly converted. We don't know for a fact that the Galatians were converted. You could say, well, wait a minute. Well, was Paul certain they were converted? He wasn't. He was concerned because they were getting swept away by a false gospel, and that's not the mark of conversion. Okay, Converted people don't get swept away with the gospel of works. They stand firm in that day of testing. They hear Christ's voice, and they will not follow the voice of another. They know, and so they're not going to follow. And he says, I fear for you, that somehow I have wasted my effort on you. Galatians 4.11. Is he certain that they're converted? No, he's not. And that's why there's such a strong, strong tone here in Galatians. It's such a serious letter, isn't it? He doesn't even bother to commend them. Usually he commends everybody. The Ephesians get their commendation. The Philippians get their commendation. The Galatians get nothing. They get, I'm shocked that you're so quickly abandoning the gospel. That's what they get. And what does he say in Galatians 4:15 and 16? He says, what has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Okay, well, he talks about some joy there, doesn't he? And not just a little joy, but all your joy. So apparently they were very joyful about their conversion. The joyful, because displays of the Spirit were shown. There was miracles, I believe. There were all kinds of stuff going on. And they were really excited about that. But now, he doesn't even know if they're converted. Doesn't that prove that you can have great and high displays of affection, and yet it's no sure and certain sign that you're born again? How about the Israelites after the Red Sea? How do they feel on the other side of the Red Sea? If you walked around and asked, are you feeling emotional right now? <laughs> what would, what would they have said? Oh, they were feeling emotional. They even wrote a poem. They even sang and danced to tambourines. I mean, they were having a very, very emotional experience, weren't they? They really were. Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. And then later in the chapter, verse 20, then Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. So they are definitely having an affection there. There's definitely emotion. There's definitely passion. And it's not a little, it's a lot. Strong passion. And I would argue that you probably haven't had any religious affections as high as the Israelites on the other side of the Red Sea. I mean, that was incredible, and they wrote psalms about it for centuries after that. To to actually see what it was like, and to see Pharaoh and his army finally destroyed, and they're finally free, and they know it's done now. They are really, truly free. Uh, what a moment. What a moment. And yet, <laughs> the next verse, even... Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses. Is that a big deal, that grumbling thing? Oh, it's a huge deal. And as a matter of fact, God mentions it many times and talks about it, David talks about it in Psalm 95, the fact that they hardened their hearts and grumbled against the Lord. They did not trust him and therefore they didn't believe in him. And therefore, they were not converted. Some of them were, but not many. And Paul himself says they're examples of people who were baptized in the Red Sea and ate the bread and all that using that Christian terminology and said, yet God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the desert. So they had very high affections and yet they were not genuinely converted. How about the crowds of Jerusalem after Lazarus had been raised? That was a big moment, wasn't it? When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth and they came forth. Those people apparently were the ones that really fired up the Hosanna, Hosanna celebration when Jesus entered Jerusalem. That's what it says in um, in uh, John 12. <clears throat> Verse 13, <clears throat> middle of the page, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel, And then 1217 there at the top, under number three there, it says, the crowd that was with him when he had called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Do you see that? Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone out after him. So we have to assume that the people did not go out in a flat, unemotional state. I mean, is that a fair assumption? That when they were saying Hosanna, they weren't saying Hosanna, Hosanna. They actually had a lot of affections. They had a lot of emotions. It was a very high day for them. And again, one might argue that you haven't experienced any emotions as high as seeing Jesus ride in because they thought that he was the king and this was the time and the Romans were finished and there it was. They were so excited about this. If he can ride, we're we're undefeatable. I mean, because we have good fighters anyway. But even if they have a lot more than us, we'll just get Jesus to keep raising them from the dead. And, I mean, it's just going to be kind of tough to beat us at this point. So, uh, and <clears throat> frankly, if he can do that, we probably won't even die anyway. He will protect us and be powerful. And so they really thought this was it. And I would have to imagine that their affections, their emotions were very, very high at that point. Look what Edwards writes about this. And how quickly was this ado at an end? Do you see that? All of this nature is quelled and dead when Jesus stands bound with a mock robe and a crown of thorns to be derided, spat upon, scourged, condemned, and executed. Indeed, there was a great and loud outcry concerning him among the multitude then as well as before, but of a very different kind. It's not then, Hosanna, Hosanna, but crucify, crucify. And why? Well, I think they felt jilted. I really do. I think that there was a backlash at that point. This is not what they expected, and the Romans are going to win again. I mean I think they were angry at Jesus for being so weak. And that's why there was such a vengeance. There was like they were like beasts of prey. Of course they were whipped up by the chief priests and the Pharisees and all that, but they were the ones who called it out. They were responsible. And so what I'm saying is you can have very, very high displays of affection and yet not be converted. Not be converted. Edward's conclusion. It is a concurring voice of all Orthodox divines that there may be religious affections which are raised to a very high degree and yet there be nothing of true religion. Wow, that's huge, isn't it? Number two. That someone's affections have strong effect on their body is no proof either way concerning their conversion. I mean, this might be good for our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. I mean, to them it's a very great mark of being born again that there's certain physical displays. Okay? And the more displays, I think, the greater the piety, really. I mean, you're really into it. You're really able to worship, like David dancing before the ark. Uh, The fact that you can really do this shows, I think, a great deal of piety. So they would believe. But what he's saying is all affections, all affections have some effect on the body. Don't they? I mean, he said, "I, I don't, that's questionable whether an embodied soul ever so much as thinks one thought or has any exercise at all, but that there's some corresponding motion of the fluids of the body. We're just married to our bodies, aren't we? And if you're gonna feel high affections as in the first point, could it be that there's going to be a physical display of that in the second point? And so these two really go together. If, if you're gonna concede that having very high and great affections is no sur- sure and certain proof that you're born again, then the bodily thing comes right next to it. And so this really doesn't, you don't have to work that hard. Now, what he's, that it's no proof that you're not converted either. Some might say this is kind of demonic. You know, to have a bodily display of your love for Christ is, is evil or wrong. Well, he says that's false. And frankly, throughout the scriptures, we're going to see, you see a lot of bodily displays or demonstrations of, of great affections. Like Daniel, for example, Daniel 10.8. So I was left alone gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. Other times the angel had to help him up because he was collapsed and prostrate on the ground. Revelation 1.17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now that's a physical bodily reaction to an internal affection, isn't it? Nobody made him fall dead at, at Christ's feet, but John just fell dead as one dead at the, at the feet of the resurrected Christ. And how about in Hebrews 12:21, <clears throat> Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai, the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Now, this is Moses, and he is, he is beside himself with terror at the foot of Mount Sinai. So there are going to be physical displays, and that doesn't mean you're not converted. However, it is no proof either that you are converted if you have these. Great effects on the body are no sure evidence that the affections are spiritual. For we see that such effects oftentimes arise from great affections about temporal things. Like what? Well, like a ball game. Of course they didn't have ball games back then. but have you ever seen great physical effects of the body of affection affections at ball games? Yes, standing ovations, crowds, cheering, the wave, all that you know the, those are bodily you know displays of affection, aren't they? They don't prove anything. They don't prove a thing. And so just because your body is doing this does not mean that you are born again. Thirdly, that affections cause someone to become very fluent, fervent, and abundant in Christ and spiritual things is no proof either way concerning their conversion. Many people tend to be taken in by this one, how he talks, especially if he never talked like that before. You know, if you say, well, you should have heard his language before, but now all he can talk about are spiritual things. Now, talking much about religion is a good thing if you're born again. Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I have said before, I've preached and I still think it's true, that all Christ needs is the 100% catalog of your words and he will accurately judge your soul. Accurately. He can do that. So he said, just give me your words and I'll know what to do. Um, But he can do that. We can't do that. And what he's saying is just because somebody else, as you're listening, is talking a lot about spiritual things does not mean certainly that they're born again. Now, talking much about religion is a good thing. It says in, Conver- in uh, Colossians 4:6, "Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt." So, talk a lot. It says, isn't that about what it says? Talk about Christ. 1 Peter 4:11, "If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God." So, converted people to talk much about their conversion, about the thing of God, things of God. But neither it is true that much fluent, fervent, knowledgeable talk is absolute proof that you are converted. Like in Luke 1.65, after John the Baptist was born, the neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Were they excited? Were they talking a lot about them? Oh, certainly they were. Lots of talk. Were they all converted? I doubt it. There's no indication that the entire hillside of Judea did not need Christ, You know that they were converted, that they were now in the kingdom of God. I think they were just excited and talking. Luke 5.15, yet the news about him, this time Christ, spread all the more so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Now, do you think that everyone that Jesus physically healed was converted? Was everybody that Jesus physically healed, were they all converted? No. As a matter of fact, in John 5, he warns somebody that he has healed. He says, look, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. Worse than 40 years of paralysis? Oh, yes. Much worse. He's warning him about hell, isn't he? And so he warns him about his spiritual state, even though his body's been healed. So here's the deal, though. If you have been physically healed miraculously by Jesus, Jesus, do you think you're going to go talk about it among your neighbors? Do you think you'll be bored about it or excited about it? Probably very excited. Do you think you'll talk a little or a lot? A lot. And you'll spread it all around, won't you? As a matter of fact, Jesus even asked some of them not to do that, but they did it anyway. Is that proof that they're converted? That they talked a lot about this spiritual thing that happened to them? No, it isn't. John 7, among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. Widespread whispering. Do you see that? Lots of talk about Jesus. Why were they whispering, by the way? They were afraid. (laughs) They were afraid. Afraid of the Jews, yes. No one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Why did John put that in there? Because he wants you to know that these folks are afraid to die. They're afraid. Now, open, bold testimony to Christ is evidence of spiritual maturity, and the lack of it is no proof that you're not born again. I mean, there are people that, you know, wimp out in key moments. But at the same time, what he's saying is there was lots of communication going on about Jesus We're not certain what the spiritual state is of those that were doing the talking. Or how about the palace guards that were sent to arrest Jesus and they came back empty-handed, remember? Remember what they said? No one ever talked the way this man did. So they were talking about Jesus. Were they converted? Maybe some of them were. I don't know. And then there's the false teachers in 2 Peter 2, 17 and 18. Men are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them for they mouth empty boastful words. And by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. False teachers do a lot of talking, fervent talking, about spiritual things. But 2 Peter 2 is a dreadful chapter. These people are bound for the worst place in hell. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible thing to be a false teacher. Terrible thing. And yet they do a lot of talking about spiritual things. Number four. That someone did not manufacture or stimulate those affections on their own is no proof either way concerning their conversion. It's no proof that you're not converted. And this is a little subtle, and frankly, I'm not going to take time. <laughs> okay, it really is, it's tough. But basically, the, the old lights were saying that the Holy Spirit always worked in a certain way. And if he worked in this other way, it proves you're not converted. But he said, that's foolish. The Holy Spirit works in whatever way he chooses And just because he doesn't follow your recipe doesn't mean you're not converted. But let's not spend much time on that because I don't think there's anyone in this room that will argue that. But God does convert some people in a very dramatic and spectacular way for his glory. He wants the saints to know when when he has worked so that he can get all the glory. And then he says this key phrase, as I pointed out before, on the other hand, there's no certain proof that you believe your affections to have come to you from the outside yourself. Now, here's the thing. You say, look, I know myself. This isn't like me. I don't do this kind of thing. This has kind of come on me from the outside, and that proves that I'm born again. Does it? First of all, we don't really understand the demonic world. There are spirits out there that are not the Holy Spirit. And therefore, it says in 1 John 4, 1, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Do those demonic spirits have an influence on people? Can they lead somebody astray into a false faith? Of course they can. That's the essence of of idolatrous religions, is that demons have led people astray into worshiping passionately things that are false. So just because something comes on you from the outside doesn't mean it's good. It may actually be openly demonic and lead you into an idolatrous faith, a false faith. It is the religion of demons. So we don't understand the spiritual world. So just because something came from the outside doesn't mean that for sure you're converted. Secondly, we don't act understand ourselves. How do you know you're not really like this? How do you know that this came from the outside and it isn't you? Could it be that this was just part of who you were, but you were repressing it all this time? You don't really know yourself, do you? So that's no proof. And thirdly, and this is interesting, could be that the Holy Spirit is doing it, but short of conversion there are actually influences of the Holy Spirit that don't finally in the end convert. Many good influences, frankly, of the Holy Spirit. I believe this is exactly what's going on in Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, 4-6, he says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift, to have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. How do I interpret this? Well, I believe that what was going on is that the Holy Spirit was doing something exceptional among these Jewish Christians that had to do with signs and wonders, miracles, uh, prophecy, perhaps speaking in tongues. All the kind of uh, sign gifts of the Spirit were at work and people were observing that. They were breathing in the air of that spiritual atmosphere. They were tasting of the heavenly gift. They were partaking of the Holy Spirit. And that perhaps brought a a change on them in their affections at some level but they were not converted. And so they move along with Christ for a while, but when the persecution came, right when the sun came up, plants withered and they were scorched because they had no root. They fell away. The persecution came. They didn't have the resources to make it. So they were breathing in the air of the Holy Spirit. They were influenced in some way, moved to some level of affection, but they were not converted. So he gives three answers to this. Fifth, that those affections come with many texts of Scripture There's no proof either way concerning their conversion. Obviously, it's no proof you're not converted if you can cite many Scriptures. The more Scriptures you cite, the less convinced I am that you're a Christian. I mean, nobody would say that. So he doesn't even bother answering that. I hate it when they quote Scripture. You know, I mean, obviously, I mean, that's... Nobody would, nobody would say that, and so he doesn't bother with it. But is it proof... That you're a, a walking Bible that you can just spout lots of verses that you are definitely converted? Definitely it is not. There are people that know the Bible far better than me or you that are not converted. It's true. Affections can rise from understanding a portion of the Bible. The person still is unconverted. For example, Matthew 13, 20, and 21. This should be familiar. We just heard it in Sunday morning preaching a few weeks ago. The one who received the seed that fell in the rocky places, the man who hears the word and at once receives it, What? With joy. That's an emotion, isn't it? That's an affection. That's He's moved. He's moved by the word. It's moved him to an affectionate level. Is he a Christian? Is he converted? No, he's not. When the sun comes up, trouble, persecution comes because of the word. He quickly falls away. The devil himself quoted the scripture to Christ. Therefore, he's not afraid to misuse the Bible for his own purposes. Man's own foolishness can also twist scripture for his own purposes and for his own emotional benefit. So just the ability to spout lots of scripture and even specific scriptures that seem to connect to your situation does not prove that you're converted sixth. That there is an appearance of love is no proof. Again, no one would claim that lots of love proves you're not a Christian, so he skipped that. But then he says, on the other hand, it is no certain sign that you are truly converted. There is an appearance of love. Why does he say appearance? Because actually it's a very weighty thing if there's genuine love. Because remember how he said that true Christianity is in the affection, and that's love. Love is the most excellent thing. And that's his point. Do we counterfeit the most worthless thing? No. The more valuable something is, the more likely it is to be counterfeited. Right? Nobody is making a fake of one's. It's true. If I made one, do you think there'd be anybody that would say, I'm going I'm to make a forgery of that? Okay. And I'm going to have that forgery, and people will think it's an original Andy Davis, but it isn't. <laughs> Who's going to counterfeit something that's worthless? Now, my kids will say, Daddy, it's not worthless. We like your drawings. But uh, it's worth it to them, and they can counterfeit them if they want. But uh, nobody else would counterfeit one of my drawings. They're worthless. But would somebody counterfeit a Rembrandt or a Van Gogh? It's been done. It's been done. And so also, would the devil counterfeit love? Yes, he would. And he has. He counterfeits love. And so there's evidence in Scripture. For example, Matthew 24, 12, and 13, Jesus said, because of the increase of wickedness at the end of the world, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Well, you can't, you, know, you can't have love grow cold if you had no love to begin with. You see that? And so they had a love, but it wasn't the fruit of conversion. It was a different kind of love. And I think that that parents can have a love for their children and be unconverted. I really do. I think people can have love for their country, their homeland, and be unconverted. There's actually lots of different kinds of loves and affections. But uh, there's a special kind that comes as a direct result of being converted. And he'll talk about that in the third section. But this is an appearance of love. Okay. Um, having many different kinds of religious affection is no proof. I'm going to skip this one because I'm going to comment at the end. On page 10, I just list the different counterfeited affections. Sorrow for sin. Those of you that have been with us on Sunday evenings, you remember the number of times that Pharaoh repented? I mean, he was a big time repenter. I've done, I, and I really sinned this time. I'm so sorry. Please take the plague off. Exodus 9. The Lord is right and I'm in the wrong. I'm, I really, I'm sorry. Please. <clears throat> He's just a, a, a prime example of a fake repenter, I think. And it happens again and again. But you can just read through these things and see um, on your own just the, the way that these things are counterfeited. Zeal, desire for eternal life, etc. Number eight and nine, you can read on your own. What I want to do is go, go to number 10, talk about that, number 11, and then read a summary that he gives here, which is really quite striking, and it left me with a question. Number eight says that comforts and joys and spiritual things follow great torments of soul in a certain order is no proof. Just because you have, like I said, a blue ribbon conversion story and that, and that it followed the recipe doesn't prove that you're converted. That's what uh, he talks about there. Number nine, that these religious affections cause someone to spend much time in religion and to be zealously engaged in the external duties of worship is no proof. Uh, but this is a big one, even like for Baptist churches. People that are like here all the time doing lots of stuff, working hard and all that. Is that proof that they're converted? No, it's not. Can it be a result of conversion? Of course. Faithful, diligent, energetic service to the Lord in the house of God is a fruit of conversion. But we can't say the opposite and trace it back. Just because somebody's busy or energetic or active around the building or in the church's ministries does not mean that they're converted. Okay? Number ten, that these affections lead people to praise and glorify God is no proof. You want to know the prime example of this? Nebuchadnezzar. What happened after Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, told him his dream, and then interpreted him? You know what happened? Nebuchadnezzar praised God. He did. He worshipped God because he was stunned. He was amazed. That was something, really. No, no, no. You tell me my dream, and then you interpret it. I mean, nobody can do that, and Daniel did it. And Nebuchadnezzar was amazed. And so he says in Daniel uh, 2.47, he says, Surely your God is the God of God and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. That sounds a lot like worship to me, doesn't it? And if you were standing there, would you have thought he was converted? I don't know, but you'd say, boy, that was good worship there. And even worse, after he sets up that golden idol and throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace... That's just one of the great moments in in, in in biblical history, okay? When he looks in there and sees four of them walking around and one looks like a son of the gods. You know why? Because he was brighter than the furnace. Now that's impressive. So he's looking in there and he says, wow. And then he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out of there. And they did. They obeyed him, right? But I think that they should have said, no, you king, come in and get us. We're having a great time. You come and get us. Or or send some of those men in there to come get us. You know, But they were not like that. And they they were submissive. And they definitely said, we're coming out. But what happened after they came out? Well, look at Daniel 3, 28 and 29. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. There was not separation of church and state in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. If you don't worship God, you're going to die. But that was his form of worship, wasn't it? What happened in chapter 4? He's back to his old ways. He's not converted and yet he's worshiping. All right. Number 11, that these affections make the people that have them exceedingly confident that what they experience is divine and that they're in good estate is no proof. All right. First of all, do people say that assurance of salvation is not possible? Yes, the Catholics say that. As a matter of fact, they say it's presumptuous. No Protestant tends to say it, although Arminians do. But you, you would say, you know, They would say that that's evidence of arrogance. And if you say, I am definitely certain that I'm converted, you must not be converted. You must be arrogant and prideful. Well, he's got to deal with them. And so he goes through a lot of texts that prove that assurance of salvation is possible. Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end I will stand in my flesh and see God. Now, that's a very solid assurance, you know. He says, uh, Paul in 2 Timothy 4 says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is store for me, laid up in heaven, a crown of righteousness. There's no question in his mind. So absolutely solid assurance. But on the other hand, there's that phrase again. If you have a solid assurance, are you definitely converted? No, you're not. Strong assurance does not prove that, you're, uh, that you are converted. Stoddard put it this way, some hypocrites are a good deal more confident than many saints. Mm. And Edwards especially points to the Pharisees. Such an overbearing, high-handed, and violent sort of confidence is this, affecting to declare itself with the most glaring show in the sight of men, although it is seen in many has not the countenance of a true Christian assurance. It savors more of the spirit of the Pharisees who never doubted that they were saints and even the most eminent of saints and were bold to go to God and come up near Him and lift up their eyes to Him and thank Him for the great distinction He had made between them and other men. I thank You, God, that I'm not like other men, like this guy down here, this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything and I thank You that I'm so righteous. Is he lacking in assurance, that man? Oh, no, he's not hurting in assurance. Not at all. Not hurting in self-esteem either. I mean, he's got the whole package. Is he converted? Jesus said he wasn't. He said the other man went home justified, not this man. So he was not justified. Did Jesus have an easy time convincing the Pharisees that they were not converted? Oh, he had a brutal time convincing them. It was really, really tough. Anyway, the natural state of the human heart is overweening pride. We tend to be very confident. And then twelfth, he says, just because all your Christian friends say that you're Christian doesn't mean you are, okay? Just because eminent godly people look at you and say you're converted does not mean you are. Now, look at this. This is very, very interesting. On page 14, he gives a summary here, which ties our entire lecture together tonight. And when I read it, I was left weak in the knees. Seriously, you read it and you're like, what is left? And it made me want to go on to the third section, but I didn't have time. So and I said, oh, please give me some, something to stand on. <clears throat> this is Edwards now. I didn't write this. This is coming right from Edwards. Hypocrites may have religious affections of many kinds together. They may have a sort of affection toward God that bears a great resemblance of dear love to him. And so a kind of love to the brethren and great appearances of admiration of God's perfections and works. And they may have a a sorrow for sin and reverence, submission, self-abasement, gratitude, joy, religious longings and religion and the good of souls. And these affections may come after great awakenings and convictions of conscience. And there may be great appearances of a work of humiliation and counterfeit love and joy. And other affections may seem to follow these and one another just in the same order that is commonly observable in the holy affections of true converts. And these religious affections may be carried to a great height and may cause abundance of tears. Yea, may overcome the nature of those who are the subjects of them and may make them affectionate and fervent and fluent in speaking of the things of God and dispose them to be abundant in it and may be attended with many sweet texts of Scripture and precious promises brought with great impression on their minds and may dispose them with their mouths to praise and glorify God in a very ardent manner and fervently to call upon others to praise Him, crying out of their unworthiness and extolling free grace, and may moreover dispose them to to abound in the external duties of religion, such as prayer, hearing the Word preached, singing, and religious conference, and these things attended with a great resemblance of a Christian assurance in its greatest height, when the saints mount on eagles' wings above all darkness and doubting. I think it has been made plain that there may be all these things, and yet there be nothing more than the common influences of the Spirit of God, joined with the delusions of Satan, and the wicked and deceitful heart to which I may add that all these things may be attended with a sweet natural temper and good doctrinal knowledge of religion and a long acquaintance with the saints way of talking of expressing their affections and experiences and a natural ability and subtlety in accommodating their expressions and manner of speaking to the dispositions and notions of the hearers and taking taking decency of expression and behavior formed by a good education Boy, that's a pretty complete package when you look at it, okay? How great, therefore, may the resemblance be as to all outward expressions and appearances between a hypocrite and a true saint. Doubtless, it is the glorious prerogative of the omniscient God as the great searcher of hearts to be able well to separate between sheep and goats. Aren't you glad it's not your job? And what an indecent self-exaltation and arrogance it is in poor, fallible, dark mortals to pretend that they can determine and know who are really sincere and upright before God and who are not. It's almost like I'm hearing Wesley at the end there. John Wesley, can you really tell me what's going on in that individual? The ability to stare into their heart and tell me they're converted? We don't have that power. Jesus does. He can look at Nathaniel and say, now here's a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. John chapter 2, he cannot commit himself to people who are swayed by his miracles because he knew what was in a man, didn't need any testimony about what was in a man because he knows all men. That's Jesus, but that's not us. And so therefore, can we standing on the outside look at somebody and say, 100% they're, they're Christians, so much so that if they then fall away, you'd say, I'm changing my theology. Evidently, you can lose your salvation because there's no doubt in my mind that he or she was saved and now they're not. Can we really do that? Do we have the ability to look in someone's heart and say they definitely were? Now, does that mean that we can't have practical fellowship, that we don't know really whether our wife or husband is converted or that? No, no. I mean, I think we're just free in the matter. I think just accept people as they present themselves to you Paul says, "We know, brothers loved by God, that He has saved you, that you are chosen." First Thessalonians one. He actually goes to predestination. He says, "We know that you are chosen." And in my feeling is, we can accept one another as Christians and walk. In, but but if it our, if it goes bad and people and I've seen it happen since I've been here, I don't then trace back and say, "I guess I was wrong. I guess you can lose your salvation." I don't do that. I just say they were they weren't converted. Or they may be, as Jim said, in a very severe state of backsliddenness and we need to do what we can to reclaim them. All right? Now you say, okay, what's left? Okay? I mean, this is looking real good. I'm not even at this level, you know? Um, I had a serious question, question to ask Edwards. Is there any evidence from Scripture of any one person who possessed all these qualities for a long period of time and yet actually were regenerate? One at a time, yes, but... The whole picture, I mean, that's pretty rare. And I think he, even he would say that if you see all of these things operating, it's every likelihood that they are Christians. But what I did was, after asking that question, I took the Pharisees back through and they passed all these tests, all of them. They just made it right through. They, they traveled over land and sea to win a single convert and then made them twice as much a son of hell as they were. Matthew 23. They were zealous self-confident, study, studiers of the Word of God. They were prayer warriors. They were all that. So, anyway, next time we're going to talk about what are sure and certain marks <laughs> that you're converted. <laughs> but I gave it to you at the beginning. It's a passionate longing after personal holiness by brokenhearted sinners. Okay, are you encouraged? Do you have hope? Do you see that working in your life? Be encouraged. <laughs> or read the book of First John. This is how we know. You know, et cetera. <laughs> Woe is me. Yes. Right And and see, I believe that we can ourselves have assurance. We already read a book on that. Uh, definitely we can have assurance. All this stuff is standing on the outside looking at somebody else. You see, can we stand on the outside and look at somebody else and say, they are definitely a Christian? I, I We can't do that. But we can practically have fellowship with one another. Yes, you had a question? I absolutely believe that. Uh, you can't lose your salvation and you can't lose the Holy Spirit. He says when the counselor comes, he will be with you forever. Yeah, I believe that with all my heart. Mm-hmm. That's it. They didn't. I think that in Hebrews, yeah, in Hebrews 6, I, I was using an analogy. It was like they bre- breathing the perfume or the incense of the Spirit. That was just a poetical way of saying they were in a room where the Spirit was active. If you come in a room where the Spirit's active, and people are are praying fervently and groaning after Him, etc., you're going to be moved by that. You're going to be heated up by that. But you might not be converted by that. That's all I'm saying. You're in an atmosphere where the Spirit's you know, at work. Those are good questions. I'm going to close in prayer and release those of you that want And and if anybody wants to come and ask me questions or talk, we can do that.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes,